Hi, my name is Tracy Harmon, and the Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 11. Look, the day of the Lord is coming with cruel rage and burning anger, making the earth a ruin and wiping out its sinners. Heaven's stars and constellations won't show their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will no longer shine. I will bring disaster upon the world for its evil and bring their own sin upon the wicked. I will end the pride of the insolent and the conceit of tyrants I will lay low. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Then I looked on as the lamb opened one of the seven seals. I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. So I looked and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and was given a crown. And he went forth from victory to victory. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Out came another horse, fiery red. Its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would kill each other. He was given a large sword. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand with us for the gospel reading found in Mark chapter 13, verses 7 through 8. When you hear of wars and reports of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must happen. But this isn't the end yet. Nations and kingdoms will fight against each other, and there will be earthquakes and famines in all sorts of places. These things are just the beginning of the sufferings associated with the end. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Gracious Father, we come before you today, gathered together by your spirit in your presence as your people. And we ask that as we're here during this time and we look to your scriptures, that you would speak to us and that you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, eyes to see, and most importantly, that in the midst of our time, that you would reach down deep into our hearts. And you would ignite us with holy love for you and for others. That we might go forth from this place into the world that you have sent us to be ambassadors for the good news of your great victory in Jesus Christ. In your name we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. For those of you who are watching online tonight, thank you for joining us. If you would go ahead and take just a moment, go to the comment section on Facebook or on YouTube and say hi to Jim and Martha Cole for us. For those of you who are here, it is great to see you here in the room. A couple of just really quick updates before we begin. First of all, we're getting ready to launch our next Alpha course. Uh, so Alpha is this course that's designed specifically for people that have questions about the Christian faith. And maybe you know someone in, that you live with, or maybe someone that you work with, or someone in your neighborhood, a friend who 
is wrestling with Christianity and wrestling with who is Jesus and why does that matter? And they're asking all sorts of questions. You're looking for a place to have conversations around those ideas. Alpha is specifically designed and set up for that. It's going to be launching on September 29th uh, in person down at the Commons, our downtown office location for New Life Downtown. If you have questions about that or you want to find out more, you can go to alphadowntowncos.com or you can see Pastor Jay in the lobby at the Info Center right after the service. Secondly, we had hoped that this week that Pastor Glenn was going to be back uh, preaching and being with us here in the services. Unfortunately, his doctor's appointment on Tuesday did not go the way that we had hoped and prayed that it would. Uh, He still got some bruising and swelling on his vocal cord. So on Tuesday, he's going to be heading up to Denver uh, to go and visit a specialist up there. They're going to take another look and kind of make a plan from there. So please continue to pray for Pastor Glenn and Holly and their kids. Uh, Since last Tuesday, since that appointment, Glenn has been on another like seven-day total silence. So I think he's in day five uh, right now of total silence, trying to give his vocal cords time to heal. So Glenn, if you're watching online, we love you, man, and we are praying for you and hope that you feel better soon. We're asking the Lord to finish the good work and the healing that he started in you. All right, well, tonight we are going into our sixth week in this series called The Last Word through the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation. And for some of you, the very first week I said, hey, you know what? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to just start reading through the book. And when you get to the end, start over and read it again. And some of you, you've been reading, you're like, okay, chapter one, that works pretty well. Chapter two, three, okay, I think I'm tracking. Chapter four, okay, I'm good. Chapter five, okay, okay. And then you get to chapter six, you're like, I have no clue what's going on anymore. You're like, can we just get to those places where we can talk about that? Others of you, you've been sitting here for five weeks, and you're going, when's this going to get weird? Like, we want to talk about the weird stuff, like the things that, that we, you know, like the, the dragons and the beasts and the harlots and, the, you know, all of those kinds of things. You're like, well, I have good news for you. Tonight's your night. We're, we're going to, we're going to start addressing those things. Tonight we're going to talk about seven seals and four horsemen and the number 144,000 and start diving into all those things. We'll be in Revelation chapter 6 and 7. But really what happens when we get to this point in the book is that this is really when Revelation starts to begin to address evil. That those first couple of chapters are making sure that we have some real clarity about who God is, about what he has done through Jesus, about who the church is and what our role is in the world and what it means to worship in the midst of all that God's doing. And now that we have those things settled, now we can actually begin to talk about what is God's response to evil. And for a lot of us, the presence of evil is one of the great challenges to our faith. That if evil wasn't around, and if there wasn't so much evil that we encountered, it would seem so much easier to put the pieces of our faith together. That either for ourselves or for our loved ones or the people that we interact with, the question about why do bad things happen, why is there evil in the world, is one of those pressing, gnawing, sort of ever-present questions for us. 
And it was especially even in the first century for the early church right after the death and resurrection of Jesus and they begin to see what was going on in the Roman Empire and this incredible persecution coming against the church and people being killed because of their belief in the name of Jesus. They're going, why aren't things getting better? Like Jesus, we believe, has won this great victory for God. So why aren't we seeing all of the things that we want to see? wrestling with those kinds of questions. And what we really want is we want the Bible to provide us with sort of a comprehensive, systematic sort of answer. You know, we can turn to the book of evil and read all the things that the Bible has to say about that. We want to have some sort of almost philosophy textbook. The Bible doesn't work that way. Instead, the way that the Bible works when it's talking about evil is that first of all, it gives us a framework. The beginning and the end a good creation and a new creation where there is no evil. And and asks us and invites us to see evil within that framework, that evil will someday have an end. And in addition to that, it provides us, instead of this sort of comprehensive chapter addressing all of the things, all of our questions, it presents us a mosaic of stories and prayers and poems and songs and ideas and pictures that we hold together as the people of God that are meant to help us navigate the challenges that we face as we wait for Jesus to come again. Provides us all of these things to help us sort of understand what evil is and how we respond to it as the people of God. And we get one of those pictures, one of those mosaics in Revelation 6 and 7. So we're going to be there tonight. But last week, when we were in Revelation chapter 5, we remember we were here in the midst of John's vision. And John is transported into the very throne room of God and he's beholding all of the worship that's happening there. And then he sees the one seated on the throne is holding this scroll. And we said the scroll is in the right hand, which symbolizes that this scroll contains the very plans and purposes of God. That the very ideas that, uh, that display for us how it is that God is going to fulfill his promises, how it is that God's going to defeat his enemies, how it is that God is going to rescue and redeem his people and his creation, they're all caught up in this scroll, but this scroll is sealed with seven seals. It's completely and utterly and entirely sealed. It's locked up. And John, when he sees this, he weeps because he wants to know who is the one that can open the seals and read the scroll. These seals, what they really do is they prevent the scroll from being opened and read. The seals themselves actually stand in opposition to God's plans and purposes. That God's plans and purposes are contained within this scroll and the seals are preventing God's plans and purposes from coming about. In that way, the seals actually represent for us evil. They're the things that stand in opposition to what it is that God wants to see happen and therefore they have to be dealt with that we actually have to deal with those things. See, one of the very core sort of convictions of the scriptures and of the people of God is that evil must be named and evil must be condemned. That we can't live life pretending that evil doesn't exist 
And we can't go about sort of confusing categories and wondering, eh, you know, I'm just not really sure if there's good or evil in the world. But we're really clear in the scriptures that there is evil, that there is an enemy, and that must be named and condemned. It must be dealt with. Evil exists and evil must be judged. It has to be named and has to be condemned. And what John sees is that the only person that can do that is Jesus. They hear who's the one who is able, who is the one who is powerful enough, and who's the one who is worthy, who's the one who's pure enough, who's the one who's actually won God's victory that can actually confront these seals. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And now we get into Revelation 6 and Jesus starts to go to work. The lamb starts breaking open the seals. And we read this in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Then I looked on as the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, Come on! And so I looked, and there was a white horse, and its rider held a bow and was given a crown, and he went forth from victory to victory. Over the next several verses, we see that this is the first of four horses with riders. Four horses with riders that are oftentimes known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which is a phrase that I first heard in reference to four dudes in the WWF in the 1980s. Anybody else? Yeah, there's a few of us that were watching professional wrestling back then. That was my context until I became a Christian in high school. It's was like, what? what's going on here? Like, those guys were kind of fun. This, not so much. So here that we're, we're introduced these four horses. Horses are always military animals in the scriptures. You know, for us, we think about, you know, going on hikes and trails with horses or going horseback riding in some sort of, you know, casual, entertaining sort of way. But in the scriptures, horses are always military animals. And these four horses, they represent four powers that oppose God, that oppose the power of God at work in the world. In a sense, they are personifications of evil at work in the world throughout history. That we can look throughout history and we can see these forces at work. The first one is the white horse of conquest. Here for John and for the early church, they understand what it, what it means to live under the threat of conquest. They have been defeated. That they live under the rule of Rome and of Caesar. And they... Rome and Caesar just stand in this long line of kings and empires that have set themselves with the one goal of trying to take over the world. It was Assyria, it was Babylon, it was Egypt, it was Persia, it was Greece. These are not in order, I'm just saying them off the top of my head. And now we get to Rome. Eventually it's pinky in the brain. There are all sorts of folks that their goal is to take over the world. We've seen even the effects of imperialism and what happens when a group of people try to dominate and control others. The horse really represents the misuse or the abuse of power. To take the power that we talked about last week and to use it to conquer and control. To use it to get to the top and stay on top. 
to use power for our own self-serving sort of causes. The horse really represents that disordered desire for us to rule on our behalf rather than to rule on God's. It's this sense of conquest, of ambition, of pride that exists in the world. And right after this horse is unleashed, right behind it, we see the second, the second seal being opened and out comes the fiery horse of violence. What's the primary way that we go about conquest? How do we go about getting to the top? How do we go about having our will done? How is it that we go about asserting our misuse of power in the world? Most of the time, that's through violence. We can look around and we see how violent of a world that we live in. And it's not just nation states. We see nation states throughout history waging war and causing all sorts of havoc in its wake. Raging war and claiming that it's going to bring peace, which only brings another war and another war and another war and another person rising up to come against that person. But even smaller places, we see peaceful protests turn to violent riots. We see social media and other things being used to bully or to cancel other people. We see all kinds of forms of violence being enacted upon people. Right behind conquest come violence. And after that, Jesus opens the third seal and reveals to us this third power that is coming against God in the world. And we see outrides the black horse of exploitation. That we want to conquest and we go about gaining control through violence and we keep control by economic exploitation. This writer's holding scales, and the text talks about how the very things that people need to, need to eat to survive are now, are now too costly for the poor to afford. And yet the very things that are considered luxuries are in abundance, and the rich can have as many of them as they want. See, after violence comes economic exploitation, the creation and perpetuation of unjust systems that benefit solely those who are in power. We've seen this happen. Even in the last six months in the midst of the pandemic, we've seen how it has disproportionately impacted those with means versus those without means. We've seen big corporations have their stock go through the roof while small businesses struggle to stay open and many of them close. We see happening the very thing that happens in You've Got Mail. Fox Books is moving in and the shop around the corner is falling to F-O-X Books. See this happening. It's economic imbalance that happens within the world. And right behind that, the four seal gets open and the pale green horse of death comes trotting out. That horse that many of us became familiar with from Johnny Ringo in the movie Tombstone talking about this horse. But really, this horse is death itself. Death is riding on the horse. That when we see conquest and when we see violence, and when we see exploitation, 
the result of that is death. Death by sword, death by famine, death by disease, death by wild animals as people are pushed out of their shelter to go and live in places that are unsafe. We know as followers of Jesus that actually death is the general consequence of our collective rebellion. That death is the consequence. Here in the passage, when you get a chance to read it later, it actually talks about one-fourth of the earth dying. This is the scripture's way oftentimes they speak about uh, at any given time that four generations are alive. That one-fourth of the earth is passing away while one-fourth of the earth is being born. And there are two generations in the middle. One born, one dying. See, there are moments where we see that death comes early and death comes unexpected. It comes by sword and it comes by violence and it comes by famine and it comes by disease. But the truth is, is for all of us, death comes at some point. It comes at some point for each of us. Some more tragically, some earlier than we expected. But for the scriptures, death is always an enemy. Death is always evil. Even when we can look at situations where we might say, oh, that person lived a long life and now they've come to the end of their suffering and they are now with Jesus. And there's so much about that that we can say, okay, there is a relief here and there is hope about what is to come. But even in those moments, we still say death is evil. That death is the enemy. And then we know that in our bones when we see things like stillbirth, or we see lives being taken in car accidents, or people's lives being lost in wildfires. We know that in those moments, but at every moment along the way, death is an enemy. Death is a power that resists God. So Jesus is confronting each of these things, and after he confronts these four powers, we now see then two people groups that emerge on the scene. We begin here in verse number nine. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar those who had been slaughtered on account of the word of God and the witness that they had given. And they cried out with a loud voice, holy and true master, how long will you wait before you pass judgment? How many times have we cried that same prayer? How long, Lord? How long before you require justice for our blood, which is shed by those who live on the earth? Each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little longer until their fellow servants and brothers and sisters who were about to be killed as they were, were finished. See, the fifth great evil that we see is the persecution of God's people. Is that we see in number four, the tragedy that faces death. But then there's this unique situation when people are actually slaughtered because they follow Jesus. That because of their commitment to the word of God, their faithfulness to Jesus, that they are actually killed for their faith. That here we see the people of God who are opposing these very powers in the world who like Jesus are naming and condemning and resisting evil, we find that for the people of God, just like everyone else, suffering is inevitable. And yet there is a particular suffering that comes from our identification with Jesus. 
as it happened to Jesus, so it will be for us. That the people of God will experience persecution in a world hell-bent on resisting God's in-breaking, in-coming kingdom. For many of us, that we don't experience that on a daily basis. But for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, death for their faith in Christ is a close reality. That as they gathered to worship today, there was a chance that that might be the last time that they gather before they gather or gathered in heaven and gather in new creation. For us, we don't live in that space, but for John and his readers, they did. And for so many of our other brothers and sisters, they do. And here we see those martyrs crying out, asking, how long, Lord? And they're specifically asking how long until judgment and justice. How long until judgment and justice? Typically, we like one of those more than we like the other. We would like there to be justice without judgment, but they're actually two sides of the same coin. We can't have one without the other. In order to establish justice, we must judge evil. Thing, evil must be named. Evil must be condemned. Evil must be defeated in order for there to be justice in the earth. And here the martyrs are crying out and they're told to rest. They're told to wait. But they're reassured that suffering is not forever that there will come a point where suffering ends. This is one of the great hopes of the book of Revelation that's supposed to bring to us, is that your suffering will end. Your suffering will end. Your sickness will end. Your pain will not continue forever. Your grief will have an end point to it. The very thing that you're carrying around and you don't know how long you can carry it. Yes. It will end. Yes. It will end. Yes. It does not have the final say. Jesus does. So we see the fifth seal is the persecution of God's people and the hope that their suffering will end. And then we get the sixth seal, chapter six, verse 12. And I looked on as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And you're all like, finally, earthquakes. I've been waiting for those. And then it just gets weirder. And then the sun became black as, a funeral, as funeral clothing. And then the entire moon turned red as blood. And you've already heard about that on the news for the last 12 months. And then the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its fruit when it's shaken by a strong wind. And then the whole sky disappeared like it was a scroll being rolled up. And then every mountain and island got moved around from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the officials and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free. They hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains. The mountains that just got moved, but they can still hide in them, I guess. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the Lamb's wrath. The great day of wrath has come. Who is able to to stand. 
And this is the part of the book where we get really squirmy. <laughs> like, what? What do we do with this? See, what's happening here is that we see in this, in this part with the sixth seal that there's the exposure of those who partner with evil. That there's power, the evil is a power at work in the world. And that evil disproportionately affects those who are faithful to Christ. And there are those who willingly and fully participate with the evil powers in the world. And here they're exposed. And what we see is at the beginning as this seal is open, there's this cosmic upheaval. And this is not meant to be taken as literal language of things that are going to happen in this particular order on this date in this time. This is image that comes right out of the Old Testament prophets that talk about the day of the Lord, that talk about the day of Yahweh, this day of great wrath when God would come to judge the nations and vindicate the faithful. That talk about this day in which Christ will return and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. They're talking about that day. And what happens on that day is that everyone who participates in evil, from kings to slaves, they run for the hills. As Jesus is returning, as Jesus is bringing fully his kingdom, they're running for the hills because it seems like their entire world is coming apart at the seams. Because for them it is. Their world is unraveling. The rebellious order of conquest and violence and death and disease and exploitation, that is all being undone. And for those that want that world, for those that want the four horsemen more than they want the lamb, that day seems like a day of wrath. And they run off screaming. But in the very same chapter, those who are faithful to Jesus refer to this day of wrath as a day of salvation. They refer to this as a day of victory and they sing rather than scream because they know what's actually happening, happening is God is remaking the world. He is defeating evil and he's making all things new again. And the experience is different based on the perspective. It's kind of like gravity. We love gravity. Gravity is making it possible for us to all be here right now. <laughs> gravity is keeping us down. Gravity is a beautiful and life-giving force in the world. Unless you try to defy it. And then suddenly gravity doesn't look so life-giving anymore. Gravity looks pretty wrathful at that point, doesn't it? That's, I think, the best analogy for understanding what is happening here. That as the powers of conquest and violence and exploitation and death are being put asunder, those who want that world like, but that's the world I wanted. And it looks like wrath. But the people of God know that it's salvation. We know that it's something else. See, what we learn in Revelation is that evil must be lamented and evil must be resisted. As the people of God, we join with those martyrs and we cry out and we plead to God, God, how long? How long? How long? 
how long? How long will my suffering continue? How long will it seem like it seems like evil will win? How long will I cry? How long will I grieve? How long will I live with this despair? How long, God, until you come again? God, how long? We're called to name evil, to recognize its source and the powers that resist God and in the enemy. Not to place the source of those things in God, but to actually turn to God as our Savior and say, God, how long until you defeat these powers? We turn to the one who's already won. We find rest in him and we, we find ways to wait in hope. And we know, yes, someday, someday this will end. But for those who participate in those powers, revelation is a call to Repentance to stop, to recognize, no, 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 what I'm doing, that's evil, and to turn from it and to turn against it. And when we realize those things, no, that is evil. Lord, forgive me. Teach me to turn away and to turn back against it in your name. At the end of this sixth seal, those who partner with evil ask this question. They ask, who can stand? Who can stand this great visitation of God? How can anybody stand? How can someone survive this? And then the chapter goes on and introduces us to everybody who stands. It starts answering that question for us. We see in chapter 7, after this, I saw four angels and they were standing at the four corners of the earth. And they held back the earth's four winds so that no wind could blow against the earth, a sea or any tree. And I saw another angel coming from the east, holding the seal of the living God. So one angel is holding back judgment and another angel is coming with the very seal of God. And he's going in and he's placing it on God's people. He cried out with a loud voice to the four angels who've been given power to damage the earth and the sea. And he said, don't damage the earth or the sea or the trees until he put his seal on the foreheads of those who serve our God. And then I heard a number. And the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. He sees four angels standing, holding back the judgment, and another angel, a messenger, sealing the forehead of 144,000. 144,000, if you're into math, is 12 squared times 1,000. 12 times 12 times 1,000. And remember, we've said in the book of Revelation, numbers are symbolic. They're not literal. They're indicating a quality, not a quantity. And 12 is a number of inclusion or entirety. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples of Jesus, talking about an inclusion and an entirety. And if you have 12 times 12, that's like inclusion times inclusion. And then a thousand is a magnifier to say, well, then how do we make that bigger? Well, you like, can't, like a thousandy of them. This is what the book is doing. It's saying it's like infinity times infinity. It's a mass of people, not 144,000. It's a symbolic number saying everybody. And it goes on. It says, after this, I looked, and there was a great crowd that no one could number. He heard one number, and then he looked, and it's like, oh, it's a massive crowd. I can't even number it. He heard 144,000, and he saw 
He saw the mass. It's the same group. It's not two different groups. And they were from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language. And they were standing. Who can stand? The people of God who've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. They were standing before the throne and the lamb and they wore white robes and they held palm branches in their hands like Palm Sunday every day. See, what we learn from the book of Revelation is that there's this, we're sealed. Even as evil is unsealed, the people of God are sealed. They're claimed. They're protected. It doesn't mean that we're immune from suffering. We said suffering is inevitable in this world, but it does mean that the people of God, by the Holy Spirit, are strengthened to endure it till the very end when Jesus comes again. See, we're meant to see that evil must be patiently endured until it's permanently ended. It must be patiently endured until it is permanently ended. See, our great hope is that on the cross, Jesus completely defeated evil and death. And when Christ returns, evil will be vanquished. It'll be gone. All of those powers, they will be gone. Everything will be judged and justice will reign. And we stand because we've been sealed on our foreheads by the Holy Spirit, sealed, protected, covered, carried by the Holy Spirit from now until the day that Christ returns. And then one of the elders said to me, he said, who are these people? Who are these people standing and wearing white robes and where did they come from? And he said to him, sir, you know. You know. These people... They've come out, the original language there is they keep coming out of the great hardship, the great tribulation. They keep coming out of this world where there are powers that resist the plans and purposes of God. And how do they come out? Because they've washed their robes and made them white in the lamb's blood. Because they've washed their robes and they've made them white in the lamb's blood.